Welcome to the TAC show. Today with our special guest, Lansing Town historian Louise Bemet. This. Hello. So how long have you been the town historian of Lansing? I became town historian January 1st, 1981. How did you get into that position and stuff? I was doing the work and I thought, well, I might as well become the title. <laughs> Like, was it like, yes. did you just, did you just make yourself or it wasn't an official title? It's an official town title. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a uh, employee of the town. That's really cool. But you're not from around here, right? You're from Pennsylvania. Northwestern Pennsylvania is where I grew up. But when I was 22, I moved to Bath to teach seventh and eighth grade science. And I've been a New York stater ever since. Yeah. So what inspired like your passion for teaching? Like, was there anybody when you were a kid that made you want to go out and like teach people? Well, my mother had been a teacher. She taught in one room schoolhouses and um, she, she recommended it. She said, if you're going to have children and you teach, you'll have the summers off when the children do. Of course, nowadays, everybody has to go to committee meetings in the summer. So you're not really free, but um, so that's really, I became a teacher because my mother recommended it. That's so cool. So you were like a, like a pre-adolescence during World War II, right? I was eight when it started and 12 when it ended. So like, what, what did you see many men in like your hometown and community, like going to leave after a war? I had two brothers. My brother Roland was crossing the Atlantic in a troop ship when uh, the war ended in Europe. That was in May of 45. And my brother Alan was in the occupation uh, army in Japan after the wars were over. So yes, they were both in the military. And my husband was in the Navy, but he was in the Navy uh, in 1954. Two to 55, I think. Did you see like, during, when many of like the males within like your hometown was away, did you see like a lot of females like getting second job, like, like, like you know, get doing jobs that usually males would do? Like, my big sister, my big sister worked in a defense plant in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, because they were combined with the college so that the girls could go to college and work in the defense plant. So the, yes, there were, there was, the war really was quite an experience with things. And my family had a little grocery store and with rationing, we spent Sunday afternoons counting the ration tokens and the ration uh, papers and stuff because you all had to report that to the, to the government. Like when you were a kid, did you ever have to like watch a lot of propaganda films or like newsreel updates about what was happening in Germany or Japan? When I was a, a kid or when I was during the war or when? Yeah, when you were a kid during the war. Yeah, we had pretty good information. The radio, we had, uh, we listened to the radio every single night and got a lot of, in we didn't have television, of course. So uh, that's where we got our information at the radio and the newspapers.
And we got the Saturday Evening Post and Look Magazine and Life Magazine yeah. and Red, Red Book. <laughs> did, you ever like to go, did you like to go to the movie theaters a lot as a kid? Like, did you like going there and hanging out? We didn't hang out because nobody hung out in those days. Nobody ever heard of it. But um, the um, we went to the movies Sunday afternoon. You could go for a quarter. And we often went, we went to movies maybe a couple times a week. There wasn't any television. And when you went to the movies, that's when you saw the newsreels, which is what you get on television nowadays about the war. A lot of, a lot of things about the war in the newsreels. Uh, did you ever see Wizard of Oz in theaters or any of those films? Like, are there any movies from your childhood that like still like you still remember them to this day, like fondly? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And um, let's see. I remember I thought Van Johnson was a dream. So we'd go to his movies and uh, we went to all the musical movies. Deanna Durbin was a Oh, it's in St. Louis with Judy Garland. You ever see that one? Well, that was after I was a child. That was later on. But oh. uh, I, I think we, I think we maybe had uh, an older version of The Wizard of Oz. I'm not sure, but we. Uh, what? It was re-released a bunch of times. And yeah. I'm pretty sure the original version was released around 39. Yeah, and I, I would have seen it then. Because yeah. surprisingly, it was like a box, like it'd be considered a box office disappointment today. Like it didn't make a lot of its like budget, like a lot of profit till it was re-released like every eight years up until the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just an ordinary movie until... It got to be more popular. Yeah, like uh, like when you were a kid, did it shock you seeing the transition from black and white to color? Oh like, so boy, quickly? did it ever. <laughs> that was quite something. I can remember when my brothers told me that one of these days when we were listening to the radio, we'd be able to see people on a screen too. And I found that hard to believe. And then it came to pass. <laughs> and of course, all our television was black and white on a very small screen to start with. I think the first televisions I saw was in 1950 and our neighbors were very, there were only two television stations that we could get where I live then in 1950, but our neighbors had a television and that was quite something. Yeah. So what was your first job teaching at Lansing schools? I came here. I had my I had been trained to teach middle school and I had taught middle school and I came here. I'd been teaching special reading in Elmira for a year because I'd taken graduate work in reading. When I moved to Lansing, I went up to interview Mr. Buckley for a job. And I said, I'd like to teach social studies in the middle or the high school. And he said, with your graduate work in reading, you're going to teach fourth grade language arts. And I thought, 
how do you teach fourth grade? I had no training in elementary school. <laughs> so what I did was I pretended what I knew for the first six weeks. By then, I'd figured it out. <laughs> oh, so what's the secret? Oh, you just, I mean, I had no idea how an elementary classroom set up or worked because I couldn't remember my elementary school. I hadn't had a good experience in elementary school. And I said, when I found out I was going to teach fourth grade, I said, no one is ever going to be bored in my fourth grade because I had been bored. And by golly, they weren't bored. <laughs> How long did you teach uh, that fourth grade class for? 19 years. 19 years. So you, you didn't just teach my mom, but also my Aunt Amy, too? Could be. <laughs> And sometimes I had a self-contained room and taught all the subjects. And sometimes we changed classes. Then I would mostly teach English and history. Yeah, let me, so you, so did you retire from teaching to become a historian? Yeah, I, uh, I became a historian and I really, that took up, I made, it was a small job. It was a very small job, and I think they paid $150 a year or something as a salary. And I got into it, and of course, I enjoyed it so much that the job became very big, and I couldn't do both the town historian job and teaching, so I retired from teaching. I'd been teaching 22 years in the New York State system, and that made my uh, retirement legal and logical. And I could have, they said to me, can't you teach eight more years? You'll get a lot bigger retirement. I said, I'm, I am retiring now because <laughs> I was so interested in the town's history and I really couldn't do both, you know, and, but I had, I had done a lot of, uh, like we wrote the historical books for the town when I was teaching fourth grade. Are you aware of those books? Uh, which books are they? 1976 was Portland Point. And that one was because it was the bicentennial year. And my, and my husband said, why don't you do the project on Portland Point with all those places where the houses are gone and the cellar holes remain? So I did the research and we wrote and didn't intend to write a book, but it ended up we had a book. So we published it on Portland Point. So <clears throat> a couple of years later, Richard Solomon, who was a BOCES, manager he was a, he wasn't a teacher so much he was big shot and he said he called I was called down to the office and Mr. Solomon and Joe Lusk were there and they <laughs> Mr. Solomon said you're going to write a book on international salt because you wrote one on Portland Point and now we need one on this other point <laughs> he says we'll get you a grant of course Getting a grant is the least of my worries. I don't particularly like having to keep track of federal money. But um, so I said, okay. And I spent that summer doing research on International Salt Company and the International Salt Point in Syrian Hill. And I then, so I knew if the kids were gonna bring in information, I had to know whether that information was good information or not. And that's why I had to do the research the summer before we started. So that's that was international. That was that book. So that's then pretty, I. Hmm? That's yes. pretty cool. 
Yeah. So then I said to David Eastman, if I get your son in fourth grade, we'll do a book on Cuga Lake because <laughs> he had a boat. We had a boat. I got his son in fourth grade. So then we did Cuga Lake. And that was really nice because Mr. Eastman, whose son I had in fourth grade, he made an outline what he thought the book should be like. And I just followed his outline. And we we have a lovely book on Cuga Lake. And then I said to myself in 1988, I was going to retire in 88. So in 1987, I said, well, I got to do the salt mine. I really got to because I'd done Portland Point and International Salt. So we did the rock salt mine that year. And then I retired. Yeah. Do you feel that people these days have a harder time going to college than your generation back around 65, 70 years ago? I, we, we could work our way through college. I went to Mansfield State Teachers and it was all set up that if you qualified because you didn't have, your family didn't have that much money, you would work in the dining room or you, or you could work in different areas. But I worked in the dining room as a waitress and my senior year, I was head waitress. And my mother told me later on that I'd paid my whole tuition my senior year by being the head waitress. But I, when you're just a waitress, you, you get pretty good, you know, it takes off on what you owe as tuition, but I didn't realize it, but I, I paid my whole tuition my senior year. That was a big job too, a lot of responsibility. And you know what? I went to college and went to classes to learn things, but I learned a great deal by being head, uh, head historian or head waitress because uh, that was a big job and I learned a lot about how to manage things. These days for some of the colleges the tuition is like for one full year is like about three to four years for some of them of what the average human being like can make like like adult so. Well you have to take out all those student loans we never had to do that. Uh, our state, our state teachers colleges in Pennsylvania, and I imagine in New York, made the tuition very reasonable so people like us could work our way through. And we did. My brothers like worked their way through Penn State, and the, we girls worked our way through state teachers colleges. Do you, feel, do you feel that these days, like colleges unfairly raise the tuition up just so they can get more student loans? You know what I think? When the colleges found out that the government was willing to make quite big student loans, they immediately raised the tuition because the money was there for the taking. <laughs> and so who who gets ripped off? People who owe the money <laughs> with the loans. The thing, the thing is, is that like, like it's, it'd be extremely hard. Like the whole purpose of a loan is that you're supposed to be paying it back, reasonably paying it back. like. That like for a bank, you take like based off when you buy a house, they look at how much money you have. So when you take out like a, a house loan or a mortgage, mm -hmm. so like you know you're based they're basically not losing tons of money. But it just doesn't seem like that for college because like for college students, like if, I, if like I work an eleven hour job, minimum wage for five hours a day, five hours days a week. And then I pull out a $120,000 investment to do four years of college. 
that that would take a long time. That would take over a decade of 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 nobody like, is teaching those nobody's teaching those future students the sense the the sensibility of owing money and and what it's all about and how you should have a percentage of this and that and the other, but uh, they don't care because they get the money and and you get stuck with the bills. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't like in, that when I went. In my school, we learned about how to apply X and O's and to mix them together and to mix the exponents. Yet we're not learning how to handle our own finance and how to prepare ourselves for the future. And the only real time we've actually touched on it is like very briefly when I was about 10 years old and then we never looked back at it again. Huh. Well, I don't know if we learned how to manage our finances in, in high school, but we, uh, I don't know, our, you know, we just, we just struggled along. <laughs> My family, we didn't have much money. We had six, there were six kids. I had five siblings and we all went to college. Yeah. People would say to my dad, how do you, how do you get all six kids in college? And we all, all went and managed to do it but we all worked hard on summers and like I was a waitress one summer I was camp counselor one summer I uh, I worked summer jobs and then when I was going to school I worked uh, also yeah when you were taking college do you think there were like a like a lot of people who took bias for you as a woman going out and doing college do I think what about it you think there was like any bias towards you choosing to like go to college and to do that type of career? Well, somebody said to my dad, why are you letting the twins go to college? They're just going to get married anyway. My dad said, I certainly hope so. <laughs> so there were people who thought girls shouldn't go to college because we were just going to get married anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back. So back when you went to school and stuff like like what was there like was like your hometown mostly caucasian or was it mostly like a vast really diverse i lived in a small town in northwestern pennsylvania and it was mostly swedish we had uh, a great many swedish people there because uh jenny jenny lind the swedish songbird had bought land right where, where we lived. It was called Lindbergh. I grew up in Mount Julep, but Lindbergh was just next door to us. And so a lot of Swedish people came and we had a sweet, two Lutheran, sweet, Swedish Lutheran churches, and one Methodist church and one Catholic church. So there were a lot of, most of my friends were Swedish and a lot of them, most of my friends had Swedish parents on both sides, but by the next generation, they were marrying Italians and other things besides. Yeah. Was there any visible segregation within your schools as a kid, like within your town when you saw them as a kid, like any visible segregation, anything like that? Nope, not a bit. Uh, although when we, because we lived where there was really good hunting for deer, in the hunting season, people took in boarders. And one time, these four black men came into my dad's store and said, can we park our, our 
our car in your store driveway there and sleep there because nobody will take us in for the for the night. We can't get rooms in town because everybody rented rooms for hunters because they made money that way. But nobody would rent to these black fellas. My dad said, you certainly may not sleep in your car in my driveway. You go over and knock on the front door and tell my wife to start changing the beds. And we were tickled pink because they got our beds and we could sleep on cots, summer cots downstairs. And we just loved our black hunters. We called them Negroes, of course. And they were the nicest people. And I kind of have a feeling that they were probably doctors and lawyers. They came up from Pittsburgh and they were very intelligent and really lovely, lovely people. And uh, they came and stayed at our place. The first we had the four of them and then maybe we got six. And then they asked my dad if they could sleep in the store. And then we, we had maybe 12 and some of them slept in sleeping bags on the, in the store. And people said to my father, how can you trust those black men in the store? My, won't they steal things? My dad said, I trust them completely. I trust them more than I would white men. <laughs> so that was, they were really great people. Yeah, that's so nice. Yeah, they were uh, just, just love, really, I, as I say, they were probably doctors and lawyers came up from Pittsburgh. They were really intelligent, lovely people. What advice would you give to a new up and coming teacher today? It was like trying to find a career and like, you know, trying to make her way to this new job. I would say have a student, student centered classroom, not a teacher centered classroom. In other words, you keep control, but your kids own the room and you it's the children's classroom, not the teacher's classroom. That's the way I ran it anyway. But you have to be a really good teacher. You have to have really good discipline to be able to do that. And some teachers can't manage that. And that's so, okay. They can be good teachers anyway. So that's probably the most important thing you learn throughout two decades of teaching. About having a student-centered classroom? Yes. That works the best for me. Yeah, so like back in, like, was it a shock when the high school was built? Since I heard that before the early 70s that like the, elem, like you just had a, wasn't, you just had the elementary school was K to six and then uh, that middle school had like six to 12. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like, was it quite different to lose a whole two, like a whole two grades out of the school. Like, was there any, like, was any part of the elementary school rebuilt? Um, yeah, I think that's when they put on that uh, second grade section, probably. Um, but uh, we would, when, cause my class, my classroom windows looked out over where the high school was being built. We used to watch and build the high school. <laughs> Did the school have any sort of IT thing back in the 70s or 80s? Any kind of what things? Like internet technology, like information technology, like, like computers. Well, I was the first, my classroom was the first room to have a computer because I brought in my, uh, Os Osborne, no. It was the, 
It was the first portable computer and it was made so it would fit underneath a uh, air, airplane seat. And that's, so that was the size of it. And I was the only person for a couple, three years. And oh, my fourth grade just loved. Of course, we had this paper with the holes on the sides that, to, uh, that's what the, we printed on. And they'd wander around the building with this kind of paper because they were big shots because we had a computer in our, my room. <laughs> when I was in kindergarten, the closest thing like we had technology was like a Promethean board with the internet, but we only used it for watching videos. And these days I'm in school, we practically use Chromebooks, online stuff for everything, homework. We have like an entire like building of the school, like a like the small shed that like is just filled with Verizon servers, like all these servers to power these Chromebooks and they're everywhere. Yeah, we didn't have anything like that. I mean, one computer in my room, that was what, and I was the only one that had a computer in the building. And it was Our school moving. didn't even use computers till about five years ago. Like you know, the, when Google Classroom was created, they got us all Gmail accounts and they, gave us Chromebooks and it was sort of a weird transition. Like early in the fourth grade, you never use any of that stuff. And the next thing you know, practically a, a good 25% of everything's now digital. It's, it's just, it's sort of interesting. Uh-huh, yeah. Mostly my kids in my fourth grade, when they'd use my computer, they just used it as a, as a typewriter, you know. They didn't do, well, they, they did do some other things if they knew how to do it from home. But uh, you couldn't you couldn't communicate with another computer in the school system because there wasn't one. <laughs> so my my class really was proud of having their computer was, in the room. Was it shocking to hear about FDR's death like back right before VE Day? Like you know the they president? kept they kept his illness a secret. We what didn't even mean? know he had polio. You know, we didn't know he was on crutches and everything. He oh. was never he was never seen in a wheelchair. And when he was going to be on on television, or I don't know if, if he was uh, going to be on the newsreels because we didn't have television. If he was in the newsreels, he would already be standing behind a desk. And we never saw him in a wheelchair, and we never saw him on crutches. We had no idea that he wore braces on his legs, and um, he was. Uh, my, I consider him a very good president. Of course, my family was Republican, so they didn't think too much of him when I was going to school. <laughs> well, compared to Hoover, he did pretty well. Like, you look at, like, he basically, by two years in, he, he basically ended, like, the two hard, like, he basically ended the hard era, like, of the Depression. Like, he got people back to work, government systems, Social Securities, things we don't think of twice today were, like, revolutionary things he had to put in because basically one in five people you meet on the street wouldn't have a job. You know what he did? He he would put in something um, like the Nas NRA National Recovery Act and he'd get it going really good before they could declare it illegal. And by the time they declared it illegal, he'd done a lot of good with it. And that's that's how he operated and he did a good job. But, um, oh, I wonder if uh, he had like a, for a long time, had a democratic Senate and House, because a lot of people say today that presidents are either able to get a lot of stuff done, either in their uh, 
first two, four years of office or their last two to four years in office because, like, the House changes a lot. Like, yeah, the Senate changes a lot once every maybe 15 years, but, like, every two to four years could be, like, a new Speaker of the House. The Democrats like, didn't more flexible. Yeah, the Republicans, like my family, didn't like, didn't approve of him because he was a so like a socialist. He, gave, he did a lot of government programs, which was just wonderful because it pulled us out of the depression. And uh, of course, World War II certainly helped also because that put a lot of people to work making ships and battle and tanks and all kinds of things for the war. That that helped a lot to get out of the depression. But he was. Uh, he, he, he was, I think he was a very good president because he did a lot for the economy and and then he, he led us through that war, yeah. I heard, I heard many people compare Bernie Sanders to FDR. Do you feel that comparison is worthy? That like Bernie is very similar to FDR? He could be similar, but I don't think you can ever come up to <sighs> FDR because while my family didn't like him and, and he might not have been so, I, as, as you look back through history, I think he was one of our very best presidents. Do you think if there wasn't crazy stuff happening at the time, do you, do you think you would have gotten any of those like acts passed if it was like, you know, around the 1950s, if he became president around then? Well, it was a desperate time in 33 and yeah a lot of things happened because people were so desperate and um, yeah. do, you, do you think that that to that the only reason he got multiple terms more than two that he got more than two terms was because that it was during like a crisis like it, like right after the Great Depression came into World War II, do you think that's one of the only real reasons why he was they able to get? They said, "Don't change, don't change horses in the middle of the stream," and so people wanted to keep him there through the through the war until we got on the other side of it. And that that helped keep him in in uh, being president, and he was the first president to do more than two terms. Yeah, do you think these days, if they never had the 22nd Amendment, do you think that presidents such as Reagan and Clinton and Obama could have all easily ran for third terms if they wanted to on one? Well, let's see. Obama could have, I think. And Clinton, probably. Who was the third one you mentioned? Reagan. Reagan. I don't know if he could have done the third term, but I think the other, I think Obama and Clinton probably could have managed well, it. Think about this. So this yeah, Reagan had Alzheimer's, but so Reagan was he was about seventy-seven years old when he left office, and Joe Biden. Joe Biden will be seventy-eight when he's taking office this year. Isn't that amazing? That's sort of crazy. Well, you know something though. We're longevity with our good health systems and all today. I, I'm 87, but I'm in as good shape as people used to be when they were 60. And um, so it's just where we we have very good health system, especially in Ithaca. Very good. I'm, 
I'm pretty sure Reagan was like the oldest president in more than a century. Because mm-hmm. William Henry Harrison, he was like a Seminole War veteran. He was he was in like caught in a fight on a lot of Native American wars. Pretty sure he like was like either a congressman or a senator. So he was about 67 when he ran for president. This was the early 1800s, mm-hmm. and he was 68 when he became president. So he decided to give out his inaugural address out in ice cold rain for two hours oh. straight. And then you know, a cu- three weeks later, he has ammonia, passes yeah. away, just thrown at John Tyler. Yeah, yep. It's he, sort of he, crazy. He what? He, he just, marched down and in the rain without a hat and with just no coat. I think not a warm coat anyway. And he caught pneumonia. Yep. It's crazy that John Tyler still has a grandson who's like five years older than you. He's still around today at ninety-two. Oh, uh huh. See, we like, all yeah, get he had like a. He had like a kid at 70 and then one of his other, and then that kid had another kid around 70. So, uh, and then that kid's about 92 years old. And it's weird because his grandson looks a lot like him. <laughs> I also find it funny that uh, Herbert Hoover's like great granddaughter is actually a CNN correspondent. Is she? Like, that, yeah, that family is like these days CNN correspondents. <laughs> Somebody mispronounced his name on the radio one time. They called him Hubert, Hubert Heaver. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you feel that these days 24-hour news channels have gotten quite over the top and have gotten quite ridiculous sometimes? Yeah, I think you can overdo it. I mean, they if you don't if you're doing 24 hours news, you're going to have to do some filling with stuff that they haven't researched well or stuff like that. Welcome you know? to the 4:30 a.m. news, and today <laughs> we're talking about how I'm going to pass out from not taking my Nyquil. <laughs> Yeah, but do you feel that news was at its best during the 60s and 70s with the Walter Cronkite Washington Post era? Well, that was pretty good. Yeah, Walter Cronkite was very good. I'm trying to think of the one that was so popular. He advertised Blue Sunoco. He was a newscaster. I can't think of his name now. That was in the 40s and 50s. He was a very popular, important newscaster then. You'd have to look him up on the radio. I can't say his name. <laughs> uh, do you feel that these days so people should be getting their news from social media? From social media? Like, I look at my Twitter notification and I, I basically, according to my mind, know the entire news story and interpret it and like don't think of anything else or don't look at anything else. That's how a lot of people are these days. And like, there's this big issue since they weren't meant to be news yet. Yet some people like claim, think of them as news sites. Well, I think that some news sites you can trust and some you can't, don't, but it's, uh, Verify, what is it? They, there's that saying, trust but verify. That's what I yeah. do. They've always had tabloids, but like <laughs> yep. basically anybody can talk about 
well, like whatever on social media, and it could be considered news. But this and like, but I think people should stop considering Facebook and Twitter as and YouTube as news. Since yes, news sites cannot be can be on there, but it is not made for news. Since literally, there's no verification, no verification of most things from YouTube. You can just literally like post something random on your phone, call it news, and then boom, upload it. Yeah, I'm I'm horrified by uh, like Facebook and Twitter and all those things that, and they 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 make terrible statements that have no no research behind them, and I don't like them. <laughs> but nobody can stop them. It's freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah, but some people like. Do you feel that like this has gotten too far in terms of freedom of speech? Ah, uh, that's a really interesting question because you don't want to put any uh, reins on freedom of speech because that's one of our most important freedoms. So you, you, what you have to do is educate the public and if they don't want to be educated, you're in big trouble. And a lot of them don't. Yeah. A lot of them would like, rather believe whatever they hear that their political party tells them. Because <laughs> I feel that Congress should like honestly do something like it's sort of gotten weird like some of these like they're against fake news initiatives it's gotten so weird is that they literally start banning like news articles or posts entirely such as like a hunter biden story like that was like temporarily banned and stuff on like on twitter uh, from the new york post right before the election like, yeah, I think those... Twitter and those things are okay for opinions, but they're not good for news. Yeah. Do you feel that, like, the government should do something about this or, like, rule Facebook as a non-news site? Or... Well, you don't want too much government control. It's a fine wire that you're, fine line you're going on should they create a national news mobile app for so people can stay truly informed yeah well you want to be able to have two sides to every question or should you like say if you're like a, a news and like an, a new like say if you're doing something with news should you have like verified sources or links to something more in depth about the source and I see that for some things such as 2020 election or COVID-19 on YouTube, but not for other things such as like George Washington or, and I guess I just find it interesting. Um, like Fox News is very biased for, for their viewpoint. And who's, what's the opposite one? It's not CNN. CNN. CNN, is that the opposite one? Yeah. But NBC yeah. and CBS and, uh, and NBC, ABC and CBS, they're pretty, and especially if you watch all three of them, but I, I wouldn't watch Fox News because it's just too biased. I wouldn't waste my time on it. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I find it weird that, like, Facebook and Twitter saying they're crackdowning on like hate speech and fake news. Yet the thing is, is that they take groups down such as the Proud Boys or uh -huh. like, well, and other, 
and, and but yet they don't take down groups that are more liberal siding, such as Antifa. And I just, I find that weird and I don't think it's right either. Well, we, some like, they're biased in their own political uh, ideas. So Fox News is Republican, Twitter, Trump, and um, the other station, the other uh, like ABC and M NBC, they are maybe not as radical as Fox, but they're, they still have their own viewpoint. I don't think that these, that like these social media apps, they, I don't think they're fairly bipartisan. So when they supposedly censor or stop fake news, they're just doing it to what's it in their agenda since they're, they're not aware. They're, they're mostly just a bunch of these rich millionaire or billionaire guys who all live in Silicon Valley, which is like a heavily democratic area of California. Well, um, yeah, we don't have enough control over, over that. But, um, you know, we have our freedom and we have to be careful and guard the freedom. And, and it's, it's harder than living in a uh, dictatorship. <laughs> in a dictatorship, you don't have to worry. You just lay down the rules. <laughs> and in democracy, you have to really work harder at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, democracy has been more successful. Yep. Yeah, I don't think anybody thought when it started out that it could last, but it's lasted quite well. Oh, yeah. So anyway, thanks for talking. Thanks for well, I've enjoyed it as the guest tonight. It was really cool, with, like you like teaching me and learning about what it was like in the past. And I just got to thank you. Well, you're very for being welcome. on the show. Well, well, good luck with your for, with your uh, shows that are coming up. Well, anyway, bye. Bye.